Well, today's message is entitled Law, Liberty, or Love. We've been studying through the book of Acts, and at this point, Paul and Barnabas have already finished their first missionary journey. They're back in the city of Antioch. And last week, we read in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, where it says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So all these Gentiles, these non-Jews, were becoming Christians. But then the Judaizers were coming along. And they were teaching a mixture of grace and law. They're saying, we're, we're saved by God's grace, but we earn that grace by obeying the law of Moses. Specifically, the command of circumcision. And so Paul and Barnabas, they were sent to Jerusalem to discuss the matter with the other church leaders there in Jerusalem. And at this meeting, the apostle Peter stands up. And Peter shares how the Holy Spirit fell upon the house of Cornelius. You guys remember the story where Cornelius sent for Peter and he came up and Cornelius had all his friends and family there. And Peter says, what do you want me to do? And Cornelius says, well, I'm a Roman soldier, but I seek after the Lord of Israel. And he told me in a vision to send for you because you have some news for us. So we're just here to hear. And so Peter begins to share about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them. And as he's still speaking, Cornelius and all of his house, they begin to speak in tongues and to praise the Lord in unknown languages because they had been baptized with the Holy Spirit. God had filled them with the Spirit and gave them gifts. So apparently God had accepted those Gentiles immediately as they believed that Jesus was their Lord all without waiting for them to begin to eat or act or look like a Jew. And so let's pick up in Acts chapter 15 and verse 12. We'll read a few verses before we get to the, the new stuff. So Acts 15 verse 12, it says, Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and will build the tab rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. So he was quoting from the Old Testament, the prophet Amos, as he prophesied that God would one day rebuild David's kingdom through the Messiah, Jesus, and that that kingdom wouldn't just be a blessing for Israel, but God would use that rebuilt kingdom, the Messiah, Jesus, to save even Gentiles who are called by his name. So all this brings us to Acts 15 in verses 18 through 21. We read about the bridging of two cultures. Verse 18, James is still speaking here, and James says, Known to God from eternity are all his works. He's declaring that God had a plan from the beginning, it wasn't that God changed plans. It wasn't that God didn't know what he was going to do. 
But no, James says, look, we just read from the Old Testament how this was God's plan to bring salvation not just to the Jews, but to the whole world, to the Gentiles as well. And that's why throughout the Old Testament, throughout all of Scripture, there are several references to God's heart for the nations, God's plan to save even the non-Jewish people. Now, here's one more. God the Father is speaking about God the Son, the Messiah, in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. And he says, indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servants to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. God says, it'll be too small to just save Israel. Let's do more. Let's save Israel the Gentiles. Let's bring salvation to the ends of the earth so that every tribe and nation and tongue would be able to worship the one true God. And so James continues in verse 19. He says, therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So James is explaining, well, let's look at the facts. It's always been God's plan to bring salvation to the Gentiles, as we see in the Old Testament. We also see that God has already been saving Gentiles before they go and get circumcised or before they go and get rid of all the bacon and only eat kosher or before they don't work on the Sabbath. God saved them the moment they believed. So why are we going to put a burden on top of them? Let's not pollute the gospel, James says. He says there's no need for the Gentiles to first become Jewish so they can then become Christians. We're not going to do that. In other words, your first fill in the blank, we are saved by faith in Jesus' sacrifice, not by our own sacrifice. If you want to take notes, there's a note sheet in your bulletin there that you can follow along with. But James's point is, we don't get to heaven because we stopped eating bacon or because we stopped blank. We get to heaven by believing in Jesus and his sacrifice, what he has done. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You see, if salvation were by our own works, then we could boast in our accomplishment. I could say, Hey, I read the whole Bible cover to cover. Now I'm saved. I'm amazing. Or I could say, Hey, I used to hate people, but now I love people, and I serve them, and I do all these good works, and now I'm saved. Aren't I incredible? We don't get to do that. You see, the only thing that we can boast in is Jesus and his work on the cross. That is the only thing that will get any of us into eternity in heaven. So, James declares, there's no extra steps for the Gentiles to be saved. And yet, James does give this list of four restrictions to put upon the Gentile Christians. But I want us to understand two things about this list. First of all, 
These restrictions were given to believers who were already saved. These restrictions, again, were not hoops to jump through in order for these Gentiles to be considered true believers. No, they were already believers. Second, these restrictions were to promote unity within the body of Christ. The cities in question had Gentile Christians from a, from a Greek and Roman background and culture, and we also had Jewish Christians from a Jewish background and diet and culture. And now they're both believing in Jesus and they're trying to fellowship together. And you can imagine the church potlucks where the Jews come and they bring their carefully prepared kosher meals. And the Jews and the, and the Gentile Christians, they show up with their blood sausage and bacon, right? And the Jewish believers, they're like, I've never eaten that in my life. <laughs> that makes me feel unclean. I don't, I, don't, I don't know how I can be around this. And so this list was so that they could come together and they could be united in Christ so that they wouldn't offend each other. That's why James said in verse 21, he said, For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. These Jews who spent their whole lives avoiding meat that had been sacrificed to idols, avoiding sexual immorality, carefully draining the blood from their meats before firing up the barbecue, and never eating food with the blood. And yet for the Gentiles, they didn't think twice. It all comes down to this. We are not under the law of Moses, but under the law of love. And that's your next fill in the blank. We are not under the law of Moses, but under the law of of love. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 8 and 9, he says, But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware, lest somehow this liberty, this freedom of yours, become a stumbling block to those who are weak. It's not a sin to eat blood sausage. But don't eat it in front of your kosher friends because that's going to make them stumble. Now, we probably don't have a lot of kosher friends, and that's okay. But to the Gentile believers here in Acts 15, this is who they're surrounded with. This was a huge deal. For us, we're free in Christ to go to the movies. We're free in Christ to drink alcohol without getting drunk. We're free in Christ to vote Republican or Democrat. But the moment we make our freedom in Christ more important than reaching others, we failed. The moment our freedoms in Christ become a higher priority than the gospel and reaching others for Jesus, then we need to reorganize our priorities, reorganize our freedoms and liberties. Paul declares in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19-22, through 22, he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. Paul is saying, when I eat with the Jews, I don't order bacon, so as not to offend them. But then verse 21, he says, to those who are without the law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. Those who are without law, he's talking about the Gentiles. Those who weren't raised with the law of Moses and the dietary restrictions. 
Paul says, when I'm with them, I eat what they put before me. No questions asked. Unless that question is, do you have more bacon? Because this stuff's amazing. Verse 22, to the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. That's Paul's heart. Paul's heart is this, if they reject me, let it be over the essentials of Jesus, rather than over non-essentials like food or politics or any other cultural or preferred thing. Let Jesus be that dividing line. You see, if we make ourselves all about something of this world, then we might give people the excuse to not want to listen to us anymore because maybe they really are a 49er fan and it hurt their feelings what we said. I'm just kidding. But you see the point. We can make non-essentials an essential issue where they can no longer hear from us the gospel or see our witness and testimony. May we be willing to become all things for the sake of reaching others with Jesus. Now back to our text. James has suggested a solution to this problem. Guys, let's not put a burden on the Gentile believers, but let's give them some restrictions so that they can all get along and they can eat food and not offend each other. And so verses 22 through 29, we now read the Jerusalem decree. Acts 15, 22, Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. This is obviously not the same Judas who betrayed Jesus. This is another guy, the same name. And these two men, Judas and Silas, were going to accompany Paul and Barnabas to show that this message was from the church leadership in Jerusalem too, not just from the church leadership in Antioch. And they all go together. And verse 23, it says, They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to pause here for a moment because I really like this. You see, they're explaining in their letter that these men had gone out, the Judaizers, to tell them, you better get circumcised if you want to be saved. You better obey the law of Moses if you want to get saved. And they're saying, this was never the truth. This was never what we taught. And we never sent them forth to do this. But because of that false teaching, we're just going to officially remind everybody that we're all saved by grace through faith in Christ. And so I love that God is going to take and use this opposition as an opportunity for his truth and his grace to go out. And I think that's so important for you and I in our life, that God wants to use opposition in our life so that we come back to the cross, back to the basics, and say, Lord, it's all about you. It's not about me. 
And sometimes those times of opposition, God will use to bring us back to him, to the cross. And so verse 27, they say in their letter, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. Now, I've already mentioned how this all came down to unity among believers, that these dietary restrictions were not a law for us to follow, but the issue of sexual immorality is different from the draining the blood and, you know, don't strangle your animals when you're going to eat them. You see, the issue of sexual immorality is different because it's repeated throughout Scripture as sin. The Greek word translated sexual immorality is pornaya, where we get our word pornography, and it entails all sexual sin. The Bible is clear that any sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage is sin. The Romans had a very perverted sexual culture, and so it was prudent for them to remind these Gentile believers, hey, don't eat that weird stuff around your Jewish friends, but remember, God calls us to sexual purity. God calls us to bring our bodies under submission of what he has called us to do. And so it was a good reminder for them to tell them, hey, don't offend your Jewish brothers and make sure that you are following the Lord in all things. Now in verses 30 through 41, we read that Paul and Barnabas part ways. Verse 30 says, So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. So this group of men have come back up to Antioch up north, and they're reading the letter to the Gentile Christians. And what a difference between law and grace. You see, law brings burden and judgment, while grace brings freedom and encouragement. And we also remember and understand that this letter that they brought forth to the Gentile believers told them, hey guys, just so you know, we're officially reminding you, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. And they were rejoicing over that, right? Many of them, okay, praise the Lord, right? I was worried about that. No wonder they rejoiced. So verse 32, now Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And verse 33, after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Silas was there in Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. He liked it there. He thought this was a great place for him to stay at this church and grow in the Lord and to serve. And so he says, it seems good to remain here. I'm going to stay here for now. And so he sticks there with Paul and Barnabas. And verse 35, Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go now back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. If you see the map here, you can see they've already done their first 
missionary journey, planting churches and bringing people to Christ. And now it's been a few years. And Paul says, Barnabas, let's go back. Let's see how they're doing. Let's see what encouragement we can bring them. And let's go strengthen those new believers. Now, verse 37, Barnabas was determined to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. You see, on their first missions trip, John Mark threw in the towel and he went home early. He was their assistant, but he abandoned Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas says, hey, let's take John Mark again. We'll give him another shot. Paul says, no way. We can't count on that guy. He left us when we needed him. Then, verse 39, the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and he sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Barnabas and Mark, they headed west to Cyprus. Paul and Silas, they went north to Cilicia. But I don't want us to get the idea that Paul and Barnabas broke fellowship. I think they were both very convinced of their position and decided at best to part ways. They couldn't get along and all going together, so they split up. But we notice that they each continued with the main goal to serve the Lord. Both of them continued into the missions field, just different directions. They wanted to strengthen the churches and share the gospel. Although they were no longer serving the Lord together, they were still serving the Lord. And I like that about their example. Now it's worth noting that later on in Paul's life, he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. So Paul and, and Mark had restored fellowship later on. And he sends for Mark because he says, hey, I want you to be here and encourage me. I care about you. Now, we don't hear anything else about Barnabas and Mark. We don't hear about their missionary journey. We don't know what happened. But it's not because they were wrong. It's just because the book of Acts follows Paul for the, these next last few chapters. You see, the Bible's not meant to give us all the details, but just the essential details. And so we're going to continue reading about Paul and his journeys here through the rest of Acts. And we're just going to read these first five verses in Acts 16 before we finish up. Timothy, a willing servant, Acts 16, verses 1 through 5. It says, Then he, Paul, he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. Now, Lystra is an interesting city because Lystra was the city that Paul and Barnabas came to, and at first they thought Paul and Barnabas were the Greek gods, Zeus and Hermes, come down in the flesh, and they were going to worship them and offer sacrifices to them. And they said, no, 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 no. We're not those guys. We're here to tell you about the one true God. And the people are like, oh, so we're going to kill you instead. And just like that, a whole 180 turn around and they actually take Paul and they drag him out of the city and they throw rocks and stones at him until they thought he was dead. And he might have died and come back to life. We don't know. But they thought he was dead and so they left him. 
And then Paul wakes up and he gets up and he goes back into the city. He takes a nap and then he goes to the next city in the morning to keep sharing the gospel. That's the city of Lystra. And so they go back to that city, a nut job of a city. They come back and look, we see that Paul meets Timothy, a young believer. Paul's going to take Timothy in and mentor him. And several times in Scripture, Paul calls Timothy his son in the faith. Verse 2 gives us more details on Timothy. It says, Timothy was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go on with him. And he took Timothy and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region. For they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep that letter, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. This is kind of crazy, okay? Remember the Judaizers went out and they said, you've got to be circumcised to be saved. And Paul says, no, that is a lie. We're saved by grace. We've got a letter from Jerusalem, that proves it. We're saved by grace. And I'm here to give you this letter and tell you, you don't need to be circumcised to be saved. And the next breath, Paul takes Timothy, says, hey man, you want to join our missions trip? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay, Timothy, you've got to get circumcised. What? You see, the point of all of this was not an issue of righteousness for Timothy. It was not an issue of Timothy becoming a Christian, but it was an issue of Timothy coming on a missions trip to an area where there's a lot of Jews who don't quite understand that God can save people who are uncircumcised. It doesn't make sense to them. And so if Timothy wants to be effective in reaching them, he had to become circumcised. And Timothy willingly made that sacrifice. Timothy willingly said, that's fine. You see, it's a freedom of mine to not be circumcised. But I'd rather serve these people. And I'll take that sacrifice so that I can be used by the Lord to share God's word with them. It all came down to love. Paul was more concerned about reaching people with Jesus than enjoying his personal freedoms in Christ. And Timothy had the same attitude. So, what does this mean for us today? Let's consider again the example of alcohol in the church, in, among believers. You see, the Bible mentions several times that drunkenness is a sin. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. But the Bible never says that drinking alcohol is a sin, only drunkenness. Now, I want to be clear, Christian liberties do not give us an excuse to sin. We cannot say, I'm free in Christ to get drunk. He died for my sin, I can do whatever I want. No, that's not the truth. But rather, because He has saved us, we live for Him because He died for us. So if we have a Christian liberty or a freedom in Christ, it can't go against the clear teaching of Scripture. So a Christian is free in Christ to drink a beer or a glass of wine as long as they don't get drunk. On the other hand, 
a Christian is also free in Christ to say, I don't feel comfortable drinking alcohol. Maybe they come from a background of partying, or they've got a family member that suffers as an alcoholic, or maybe they've just associated alcohol with sin. They're free in Christ to say, I don't ever want to touch the stuff. It makes me feel dirty. That's fine. We are free to have personal convictions as long as they remain personal. Now remember, we talked about sexual immorality. We can say it is a sin to have sex outside of marriage. The Bible is clear on that. The Bible teaches that. That's across the board. But when it comes to maybe, maybe I have a personal conviction not to drink alcohol, but I can't tell you, you can't drink alcohol because I can't drink alcohol. That can be a personal conviction for me only. So don't fall into the trap of legalism. Remember the Judaizers, they felt extra spiritual, extra righteous because they believed in Jesus and they were circumcised. Boy, they felt really proud about themselves about that. And so they put their convictions on others. That's a sin. And it's a sin to think that they're more righteous because of their works. Our righteousness is from Christ alone. We can't put our, our righteousness in our own works. Now, the Christian who does drink can also fall into a trap, not of legalism, but of pride. Paul says concerning Christian liberties in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge puffs us up in pride, but love edifies and builds other people up. You see, it can be tempting for Christians to think, well, I'm better than you because I know my freedom in Christ to drink a beer or to have a glass of wine. And they can become prideful in their knowledge, that knowledge that puffs up. That's spiritual pride, and that's not of the Lord. And so whether you drink or you don't drink, God calls us to love. Because love edifies, love builds up. The Christian who does drink should be careful not to drink around the weaker brother. The weaker brother is the one who says, that stuff makes me feel dirty, makes me feel convicted. All right, don't drink around them because we don't want to cause that person to stumble in their faith or sin against their conscience. A Christian can even, in love, choose to forsake alcohol, not because it convicts them personally, but because they might know others might be convicted by it. And so they say, I'm just not going to drink it so that other people aren't convicted by my freedom in Christ. Here's the summary on your note sheet. Legalism says, I'm better than you because I do more than God requires. That's legalism. Pride says, well, I'm better than you because I know my freedom's in Christ. That's pride. But love says, I care more about you than my own liberties. I care more about you and your walk with the Lord than about my freedoms in Christ. Now, there's a ton of different Christian liberties. Alcohol is just one example. Is it okay for a Christian to smoke a cigar? Some might say yes, some might say no. The Bible doesn't say anything about it. Is it okay to wear flip-flops in church? Is it okay to have drums in the worship band? Sorry, John. Is it okay to wear makeup? Did you know that some Christians thought women who wore makeup were sinning? Others believe that 
some women who didn't wear makeup were sinning. No, I'm just kidding. But you get the point. In all these things, we are free in Christ to partake or not to partake. But may we follow Paul's words in Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Paul says, We who are strong must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this. We must not just please ourselves. We should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. For even Christ didn't live to please himself. When it comes to Christian liberties, let us serve one another. That's who Jesus is. That's the example that he's given you and I. Let's put their culture, their needs, their convictions before our own for the sake of the gospel. I want us to close with this last passage in Ephesians. It's up on the screen for you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. Paul says, Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands. Meaning, the Jews looked at us Gentiles as sinners, as unholy. He says in verse 12, That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Guys, that's the status of anybody who doesn't have Jesus. Without hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. He's talking about how God took Gentiles and Jews, and he saved them through the cross. But he's taken those who were so different, those who were polar opposites, and he's made them one in the church. That's what Jesus does. He takes you and he takes me, takes all of us, and he makes us one, united in him in the church. In verse 16, Paul says, And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit, to the Father. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. We're all saved by putting our faith in Jesus. We're saved because of the work that Jesus did on the cross for you and for me, for all of us. And so he invites all of us to come to him. If you've not yet trusted in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, then the Bible says that you are without hope and without God. Our only hope of salvation is Jesus. Putting your faith in Him. 
You don't have to go jump through a bunch of hoops. You don't have to fix your life so that you can become a Christian. You don't have to read this cover to cover before you become a Christian. You don't have to have all your questions answered before you put your faith in Jesus. You simply have to recognize that you are guilty. Maybe not compared to other people, because we can always find somebody else who's worse off, right? But we are guilty compared to God. We fall short. And Jesus paid for your sin. And so I invite you today, if you've not yet believed in Jesus, to make him your Lord, to make him your God and Savior. Would you pray? God, we thank you so much for your word. God, we thank you for issues in the early church, false doctrine and false teaching that arises and came up. And as a result, Lord, we get more Bible because of it. As a result, we get to see your church leaders proclaiming, no, we are saved by faith alone and Christ alone, not by our own works, not by the cutting of the flesh, not by jumping through these extra hoops. But Lord, we're saved by simply faith in you. And Lord, if there's anybody that's listening today, whether they're here in person or they're watching online, that has not yet believed in you, God, I pray that they would do so now. And I invite you to repeat this prayer just between you and the Lord. God, I recognize that I am guilty because of my sin. Lord, I deserve judgment. But God, you paid for my sins in full on the cross. You died in my place. And Lord, you rose again from the dead. Lord, I'm trusting in you and your work that on the day that I die, I'm going to be in heaven because of your free gift of salvation. God, would you fill each of us afresh with your Holy Spirit, that you would give us the self-control and the selflessness so that we can choose to serve others over our own liberties, over our own preferences, that you would empower us to make our lives all about your name not about our own. God, we surrender to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together.